I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in our series, What We Believe and What We Do Because We Believe It. If this series is called What We Believe and What We Do Because We Believe It, how does the doing in spiritual formation actually work? Is the spiritual journey of a young single mom the same as a grandpa? How do you follow Jesus as a teacher or an engineer, as a teenager? or an empty nester. How can we understand our own season of life in context of following Jesus? You know, if you have kids and you take those kids to the pediatrician for their routine checkup, the doctor will ask you questions. They'll ask questions about developmental milestones, they call them. Does your baby lift its head when it's on its stomach? Do they react to loud sounds? Do they smile when you walk into the room? They'll tell you about percentiles for height and head size and body weight. And can your two-year-old put at least two words together? Can they identify a body part by pointing to it when you ask, where's your nose? Where's your elbow? Can your five-year-old string together a few rhyming words? Do they accomplish simple chores at home. It's not like the milestones always offer definitive answers to questions about how smart your kid might turn out to be or whether or not they'll go to college or write the great American novel or anything. There are just a few basic indicators that we have to let us know, generally speaking, that we're basically on the right track. And uh, there are a lot of parents with small children at Van City. So you guys know well enough, there are all sorts of ridiculously disparate views on child raising and development, whatever. But when you're new to the game, those figures can be confusing. Heck, when you're new to the game, you do all kinds of funny stuff. At least I did. Uh, When you're new parents with one kid, you do stuff like, you know, take your infant who can't discern one shape from another to the zoo. And you talk to them about the baboons that they do not know are there. Or, you know, you, you, you stage elaborate birthday celebrations for a one-year-old decorated with all their favorite things <laughs> when the kid, let's be honest, has no idea what the heck is going on. We did that kind of stuff. And you laugh about it later when you see pictures of yourself with a baby that could, you know, barely hold its head up posing for pictures at the pumpkin patch in the Christmas parade. They loved it. They didn't know what the heck was happening. And that's fine. But I'm of the opinion personally, and feel free to disagree, <laughs> that... The more kids, often, not always, but more kids, often translates to more experiential knowledge. It's only natural. The lady who ran 10 marathons probably handles them differently than the woman who is about to begin her first marathon. So I have three kids. The parents with four kids know stuff that I don't know. Not only that, but the more you have, the more they can break down your sad delusions of control. There's this expression that goes something like, you know, one kid is one kid, two kids is two kids, three kids is 57 kids and a hurricane. And this week, I was rummaging around in an old hard drive looking for something for church, and I found this photo of my son Beck at an early doctor's appointment. And all this stuff about milestones came screaming back to me. Yes, as strange as it is to those of you who know him now, he was a rather large baby. Um... (laughs) And I remember sitting in those appointments and squinting at the milestone charts and, you know, the doctor's kind of flying through them and asking, whoa, 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 he does this one, but not that one. Is that okay? Is he dying? And these days, you know, I take my third kid to the doctor and they're going on about milestones. I'm, ah, I'm sure he's fine. Uh, it's not that I have it all figured out or that I care any less. 
It's just that I've learned a little more about the process and what to notice and what to make my peace with, the ambiguity that sometimes permeates growing and changing and learning more day and day and year by year, what's important about raising kids with, of course, a long way still to go. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. We're in a series that will, at, the, at its conclusion, become our church's statement of belief, our doctrinal statement, and our church's rule of life. Or put another way, it will be what we believe and then what we do because we believe it. And even as we embrace the messy imperfection of discipleship to Jesus and life in community, it's important to identify, I think, and understand those core beliefs that have been precious to Christians throughout church history without stopping at intellectual belief alone, because we want to do more than just acknowledge certain things intellectually. We want to understand what we believe about God and the Bible and the church so that we can live accordingly. So the plan for this evening is to talk about discipleship and spiritual formation. For a lot of you, this will be familiar territory. If you're new, this is really important stuff for our church and your unique season of life. How do you follow Jesus as you, where you're at now, whether you're young or old, new to Jesus, or been following him for decades? And then next week, the plan is to begin a conversation about how we work out what we believe about God and the scriptures and formation as we navigate divisive and important questions and issues, namely sexuality and gender. So just a few softballs, no big deal. I realized yesterday that it's starting on Super Bowl Sunday, so I thought, eh, nice. We'll see how that one goes. All right, because no one's here. That was the joke. All right, with that, let's get to the scriptures. Luke chapter 9. Are you guys all right? You with me? Great. Would you guys stand together as a gesture of reverence for the God-breathed scriptures? Let's read from Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, is one of his favorite references for himself, has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, well, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. These words are inspired by God. Thanks, guys. Go ahead and take a seat. It's interesting that throughout the New Testament, following Jesus is depicted not as a static intellectual state, but as a journey. So in the story, often excited would-be disciples would sidle up beside Jesus, excited to begin that journey, and they would ask, hey, can I join you? Can I go where you're going? To which Jesus sometimes replied, are you sure? But following Jesus in many a church circle has often been presented and understood through the dual paradigm of uh, ethics and belief. So, you know, you poll people who identify as Christians on the street and um, ask them what it means for them to be Christian. And many will likely describe what they believe intellectually about God and the world and how said belief informs their ethics or their kind of moral compass. And that's not wrong. It's just sort of, I would argue, incomplete. Jesus' invitation was to follow him in a way of life, an all-encompassing 
way of life. So belief and behavior are in there, sure, but so is everything else. So in order to adopt the life of Jesus, one must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And that takes practice, lots and lots of practice, which is something we talk about often. Following Jesus isn't just believing something and then kind of floating through life with relatively good behavior. It's learning what it means to be with Jesus so that over time you become more and more like Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of God to do and be more than you could ever do or be of your own will and volition. And then you learn to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And this is why each of our teaching series come with a set of accompanying practices that you take on together in your Van City community. It's why we emphasize response on Sunday evening, things like prayer and prophecy and worship, not just getting information into our heads, but responding with our bodies by reordering our lives and by changing what we do as a result. The spiritual disciplines, or what we often call the practices, are just resources. They're tools in the belt of the journeyer. Because again, that's what this is, a journey. Think about it. Given that Jesus' invitation was to follow, it logically follows that we are going somewhere. In fact, Jesus actually preferred the metaphor of a road, a narrow road or a way. The subsequent New Testament authors also loved the journey metaphor, and they build out the multifaceted aspects of what it means to go from one place to another. So the metaphors that they often use, the analogies, the word pictures, things like from slavery to freedom, to being wounded, to being healed, from a false self to a true self, from immaturity to maturity, or one of their favorites, from death to life. Really, from being far from God to being close to Him. And all that such an extravagant idea implies. Many of us know all this already and yet do not actually think of discipleship as a journey. Many of us think that we sort of at one point or another came to faith in Jesus and were then ushered into a kind of status with like-minded people. So lost, then saved. Not Christian, then Christian. And that, as they say, is that. And sure, yeah, we go through seasons and life oscillates, good times, bad times, all that. But I think we, myself absolutely included, often overlook how pressing and exact the narrow road metaphor actually is. The road changes. It it winds. You become someone else along the way. It changes you. There are lengths of the road completely unlike what came before and what will come after. There are obstacles and dangers and threats. And in the process of journeying, you learn and you change and you endure, evolve, and mature if you keep on walking the road. Look at just a few passages from the New Testament that describe the journey with related metaphors. This one from Paul. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. The idea is that you are in the journey of discipleship like a baby maturing into adulthood. Now that is a dense, multi-layered metaphor. You're at one stage of the journey, babbling, unable to speak or lift your own head. But you're there. You're still on the journey of being a human. And then you get motor function and you see more than just blobs. And even though you can't yet 
fathom complex categories, you're still on the journey. We're like that early on in discipleship, like kids stumbling our way into maturity. And that's okay. That's the journey of growth. It's natural. It's what's supposed to happen. Or I think of Hebrews 5. By this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk not solid food. Anyone who lives on meat, milk being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food, food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Or this one from Peter. Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Or from John, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his names. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And notice the way that all these different writers believe there are stages in spiritual development, landmarks of de development, and that different disciples of Jesus are in different seasons of life and stages of their discipleship. Spiritual formation writers have picked up on these motifs throughout the scriptures and come up with something called stage theory. Really, all that is is an effort to put language to a concept that's well represented all throughout the New Testament, the spiritual journey of apprenticing Jesus. At Vance City, we talk at length about the way that what we call spiritual formation is the process by which we are formed into the image of Jesus. So stage theory is an effort to sort of map that process. It's not a new idea, not by a long shot. It dates all the way back to the early church fathers and mothers, to the founders of the monasticism movement in the 4th century when John Cassian said, there is no arrival unless there is a plan to go. You actually have to go on the journey to arrive at the journey's destination. Or think to something like, uh, you know, the 1768 allegory of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, essentially stage theory in fable form. So why have so many thinkers throughout church history written extensively on this whole idea of the discipleship journey and its various stages? Because when you don't have a map, it's easy to get lost or to wander off track, or to get distracted, or to become confused about where you are in the first place, to take the long way when the efficient way is wise, or the shortcut when the long way is necessary. The road of discipleship is narrow and often difficult. That much is clear. It shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said it would be. But if there's something like a metaphorical map anyway to help you navigate the road and understand where you are, to identify the milestones so that you can best steward your relationship with Jesus in its respective season and stage, best understand what he's saying and doing with your life in a given season, best walk the road to maturity without painful backtracking or wandering or getting lost, wouldn't that map be a very good idea? Of his research on stage theory down through church history, Bruce Demarest of uh, Denver Seminary wrote this, spiritual journey paradigms provide the perspective that there yet remains much ground to be gained spiritually, meaning you're on a journey, you're going somewhere. Stage theory, moreover, provides a comprehensive frame of reference for the journey. It helps us gain clarity as to where we are presently located on the continuum of maturity in Christ. It aids heightened understanding of the contours we must yet travel on the course. It assists us to not repeat past mistakes and to avoid future pitfalls. It will likely alert us to seasons of testing, crisis, and dark nights yet to come. 
It will inform us of valuable resources that can enrich prayer experience, facilitate emotional and spiritual healing, and deepen transforming relationship with Christ. Now, all that journey language, all the idea of stages, is not exactly as linear as it sounds. And yes, it's a metaphor, so after a while it breaks down. But the idea is that you don't simply move progressively from point A to point B, like, you know, a level in Mario. You just move from right to left until you're at the end of it. The paradigm of stages can apply to your entire life journey of discipleship or to unique nuanced aspects of your discipleship journey, meaning, yes, your entire life, your entire discipleship has stages, it does, but so does your unique journey with generosity, and so does your journey with forgiveness or prayer or relationships, and that's why we can be such paradoxical people, so far along in one aspect of the journey and a total infant in another aspect of the journey. That's also ordinary. Robert Mulholland writes this, this means we can be at different stages in different areas. In one area, we may be well along the path to wholeness, while in another area, God is just beginning to awaken us to another part of our life that needs transformation. Since God always leaves us free to reject transformation, it's also possible for us to regress in this process or, in old-fashioned terms, to backslide. Thus, our Christian pilgrimage is a complex, multifaceted, multi-level ebb and flow of relationship with God. And the whole thing is cumulative, meaning it builds on itself, and unfortunately, you can't skip stages, which is a bummer, I know. And I suppose this is why New Testament writers favor the whole analogy of a baby maturing slowly toward adulthood. You can't simply skip adolescence or the teenage years and go into adulthood, many, much as many of us wanted to do at the time. So we expect a baby to be incapable of forming complex sentences. But we also expect, in most cases, that the baby will grow to the next stage of development. Each stage is fine and inevitable. Some are harder than others, but you got to do them. Getting stuck is the problem. Regression is the problem. Plateauing is the problem. So in that sense, stage theory is a useful tool to help us understand when and if we have regressed or gotten lost or plateaued. And when you know, you can unpack your toolbox and chart a new course forward. And all of it takes... I'm afraid, a very long time. Teresa of Avila said in The Interior Castle, which is just her book on stage theory and prayer, no one becomes so advanced that they don't often have to return to the beginning. Remember that and don't let it discourage you. Do not despair in the journey. Don't become complacent when the road seems easy. No one becomes so advanced that they don't often have to return to the beginning. Again, in the big broad sense and in the just little aspects of your discipleship journey as well. Now, one of the most ancient and I think well-represented paradigms for naming your stage is called the three ways. It shows up in the writings um, from the second century like with people like Origen, the Middle Ages with Anselm, Thomas Aquinas, 16th century with Teresa and St. John of the Cross, and modern writers and thinkers are, are still working with this idea. So I'm going to talk you guys through um, each of those stages, how they relate to your journey of discipleship, and how they relate to you going forward 
where you're at on your journey tonight. The three waves begin with a prologue called awakening, and then move on to the actual stages proper, purgation, illumination, and then finally something called union. So let's talk about the prologue and then each stage. The prologue to the three stages is awakening. Now think of life before Jesus as a kind of sleep in this metaphor, obliviousness to God and to the truth of God. But then you wake up. For some of you, that happened in an instant over a conversation with someone or during a sermon or over dinner with a friend. You came to faith, you discovered the truth, and life was forever changed from that moment, that conversation, that church service, whatever it was, on. But for many of us, myself included, awakening was gradual and incremental. Many conversations and incidents and moments and wrestling, things from upbringing, complemented by other things that happened along the way. And the American church kind of loves this idea of painting the, you know, salvation as something that always happens in an instant, and it often begins that way. That's true. But salvation in the scriptures is always a process. You know, you were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And that's true for all of us. Remember, the Bible's favorite metaphor for our relationship with God is of a marriage covenant. So, you know, the night I met my wife, Abby, some, geez, 18 years ago now, the first conversation, I was, you know, instantly smitten, and then in the three years that followed, we became friends, built out a relationship, eventually got engaged, eventually got married. Which part of that was comparable to awakening? All of it, really. The process of awakening can be a clarifying moment when the reality of God intersects with our own story and power, or it can be months of showing up to church asking questions, hanging out with a few friends, slowly opening your eyes. But then you wake up and you begin stage one, purgation. You are a beginner, a baby. Discipleship begins. You're learning the teachings of Jesus for the first time, stepping into life with other disciples. You're learning the spiritual disciplines, how to pray, how to read the scriptures, on down the list. And in all this, you're realizing more and more that the way of Jesus is not the way one lives by default. So you will be confronted with something that the Bible calls sin. Now, presently, people aren't thrilled about the idea of sin. The idea of sin, the culture often argues, is oppressive or antiquated or out of touch. The idea of sin was, you know, invented by the patriarchy to control us. But everyone believes in sin. It's actually not that controversial an idea. The most anti-rule-based, you know, pseudo-spiritual progressive, of course, believes wholeheartedly in right and wrong and in the idea of human transgression, all of it, but usually as defined by them or a tribe or a political party rather than, say, God or the Bible or whatever. Just recently, I had a conversation with someone who was really angry at me uh, for what they described as the unbelievable arrogance of ever presuming to know what's best for someone else and that there are objectively right and wrong things to believe in ways to live. And I asked him, okay, well, how do you feel about racism or sexism or political corruption or police brutality? How do you feel about spiritual abuse or sex abuse or child abuse? I, I have yet to meet personally that true chaotic nihilist who actually consistently believes and lives out the, hey, you do you philosophy, everyone just define their own truth, because it, it can't be done. More often than not, it's, hey, you do you, as long as you're doing you according to my hyper-specific, ever-evolving socio-political moral sensibility. But sin is the idea that God has a definition of good and evil, and our paradigms for either thing are often incorrect. So we miss the mark, we fail, we get it wrong, but now that you're awake, 
now that you've begun the journey of discipleship, you are confronting the obstacles of sin on the narrow road. And as you walk, as you practice, as you proceed, you are purging sin from your life. You are uncovering things within that are out of sync with the teachings and practices of Jesus. And you're learning to live differently as a result of this discovery. Now, before we move on to the next stage, give me just a few minutes to unpack the idea of sin a little more because I know everyone wants to talk about sin all night. But I actually think this is helpful. There's actually several different categories to how we think about sin. The first is something called major sin or obvious overt sin, the glaring things that you learn right away, like, oh, wow, that's not the way of Jesus at all. And these are the kinds of things Paul deals with all throughout the New Testament, specifically in places like Galatians 5. You know, he has lists, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, faction, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So how often have you heard stories um, from folks who, when brand new to Jesus, said things like, oh, this last week I was living this way, completely antithetical to the way of Jesus. I was getting high or sleeping around or, you know, one of the greatest sins of all. I was talking and texting during the movies. And, but then I met Jesus, you know, and everything changed. So that's kind of the idea. It's that the, the kind of glaring lifestyle sin that is the first thing to go because it's so obvious when you actually uncover the teachings of Jesus post-awakening. And then you confront conscious sins. Conscious sins are often culturally and socially acceptable, but they defy the way of Jesus. Pornography is an easy example. Political idolatry is another. There's also military violence or divorce or modern progressive sex ethics. But there are also things socially acceptable inside the church that yet defy the way of Jesus. Materialism is an easy example, or fast fashion that supports slave labor and injustice, eating habits that support factory farms and cruelty and ecological fallout, gossip, image curation through social media, digital addiction, things that are flagrantly anti-Jesus, and yet we persist in them because it's easy and mostly socially acceptable to do so. But then things get even trickier because there are also unconscious sins. Robert Mulholland writes, here is where we begin to let the Spirit of God reveal to us, as in we didn't know they were there, aspects of our inner being that have been invisible to our view, but that now we begin to see as hindrances to our growth toward wholeness in the image of Christ. Now, these are also sometimes referred to as sins of omission, meaning not what you do, but what you don't do, meaning you've yet to step into the discipline of generosity and justice or evangelism, whatever it might be. Or maybe it's that you do good things, but with bad motives. You give, but for approval. You do justice, but you do it for the Instagram shots. Or un unconscious sins can be deep-seated, internal, and most of the time we don't realize it's happening until the Holy Spirit shows us. Now, if you're like me, for example, it's very hard to imagine ever hitting another person. I'll never own a gun. I can't remember ever feeling like I wanted to physically fight anyone for obvious reasons. But I can seethe with animosity. I can set out to destroy other people with my words. That is something that occurs to me to do. I can burn with resentment. I can drag people through the mud and mire with gossip. Now, all of those are just other dimensions of this thing we call violence, the desire to destroy another person made in God's image. So given the complexity of unconscious sin, it's often pretty tough to purge. And yet, as disciples of Jesus, eventually it has to go. 
And then the final category in the purgation process is something called trust structures, which Robert Mulholland defines as deep-seated attitudes and inner orientations of our being out of which our behavior patterns flow. Those deep inner postures of our being that do not rely on God, but on self for our well-being. Meaning, this is the way that you cope with pain. This is the unique way that you chase after happiness and contentment, what you think you need to be whole, survival. And it's what makes this category so, so complicated is the fact that many trust structures are in and of themselves good things. Things like family or vocation, your dream, romance, marriage, parenting, relationships, even church work or justice work or mission. But they are also things from which we learn to draw life rather than from Jesus himself. And we all have them. And here's how you begin to identify yours. Ask yourself, how would I feel if I lost, and then you fill in the blank, my smartphone, my career, my family? Would it be very difficult, devastating, or would it be your undoing? Would not even Jesus be enough? Because, and I tell you guys this all the time, it's all going. Instagram will go the way of MySpace eventually, and you're... you're your career will end at some point. Your relevance will fade. Your impact will dissolve. You and everyone you know and love will eventually die. I also officiate weddings, by the way. Um, I don't know why no one asks anymore. The couple that I've done have not gone well. This is not false modesty. And one reason is because I tell them I'm not wearing anything else. They're like, you have something nice to put on? I say, no, Kyle. This is it. Like, why is he dressed like that? Accepting the reality of how transient these things are is a move toward deep trust in God that can eventually alleviate anxiety with profound soul-level peace. It's not the idea that you stop caring about things like vocation or family, but that you're learning to redirect the flow of value and life from Jesus and let Jesus define the value in all those things rather than the other way around. Trusting God not for everything to work out, according to your terms, or to be okay, the way we often use that term, but trusting God's unshakable proximity, that he is close, and he is good, and he loves us, and then learning to accept that has to somehow be enough. And when that happens, you no longer flap and fret and claw at other things in anxious desperation, and you're free to enjoy what's good and to not be undone by the inevitability of loss and death, which is a lot easier said than done. All of that is purgation. Now, that's stage one. Now, the second stage is illumination, and this is where you begin to gain levels of proficiency. You no longer bumble clumsily at the keys of the piano. You can actually make chords, and you play them. With each passing year, your inner disposition is slowly being overhauled by the way of Jesus, and the outgrowth of the Holy Spirit in your life is more represented by your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, and on down the list. Jesus is becoming more and more for you, not an idea, not an intangible force, but a close friend. 
an intimately known and real person. And the stage is called illumination because it's like a sunrise over the mind. Your eyes are being opened more and more to the truth of Jesus' teaching. You believe more than his claims to be Messiah and Lord and God. You actually believe the things that he taught are true and good and that he did know the true and only way to life to the fullest. And as you read the Bible and you sit under teaching and you live in community and you fill your mind with the things of the Spirit and the way of Jesus and you live out your discipleship with others in community, the family of God, the church, your life is changing. You are changing. Who you are at a fundamental level is changing. The Catholic philosopher Michael Novak argued for three levels of belief. He said, first you have something called public belief. Now that's what you say you believe. The image that you project, the, the mostly disingenuous, you know, image in your social media feed. Private belief is what we think we believe, sincerely think we believe, until life somehow puts it to the test and proves otherwise. But core belief is what we actually believe. It's the kind of belief with which your life always enjoys congruence. Now, these are usually base primal things. If your core belief is, for example, that fire will burn you, then you avoid being set on fire. You don't have to think about it. You just believe fire burns, so you don't touch it. If your core belief is that food nourishes you, then you eat food to be nourished. You do this reflexively. You do these things without you know, complicated deliberation. You simply believe and you act on that belief. Illumination is the stage in which the truth of Jesus is becoming your core belief, core to your person. And in doing so, you are developing what Paul called the mind of Christ. You no longer have to convince yourselves or think about or fight through or wrestle through the process of believing Jesus. You actually believe that what he said is true. Paul wrote that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And our will in this stage begins to harmonize with the will of God as we learn to live in obedience. So obedience is, of course, you know, just right beside sin on a list of modern no-no words. But in the Bible, to walk in obedience to God is freedom and, and truth, the full realization of who you are and who you are made to be. Author and pastor John Ortberg describes it this way, Obedience to Jesus in all things is the journey. But obedience is a far more creative, proactive, grace-powered, intelligent way of life than is normally thought in our day. The obedience Jesus calls or called for requires judgment, discernment, creativity, initiative. It's about becoming an excellent person, not an excellent rule follower. In fact, an obsessive concern with following rules will hinder your development into becoming the kind of person who does what Jesus says. So, in illumination, you're moving in many ways from practice to new mastery. Never perfection, but mastery. Just as there are no, you know, perfect pianists, there are masters. Those who further shortcomings and lapses in their craft have developed considerable skill. And then the final stage, union. This side of resurrection, union is the highest level of maturity for disciples of Jesus. Jesus talked about being perfect, as his heavenly Father is perfect. But a more accurate translation of the idea for us is to be made whole 
and mature and complete as our Heavenly Father is whole and mature and complete. Now, that doesn't imply that there's no longer any mistakes whatsoever, no longer any sin in your life whatsoever. But the idea is that sin no longer rules and reigns in your life. To experience true union with God is to live in baseline synchronicity with the heart of God. Thoughts, feelings, dispositions, desires, they flow from God and back to God. Again, not perfectly, but that is the baseline. Again, from Ortberg, union with Christ to abide in Him means that He's present in our minds and can communicate thoughts to us at any moment. Human beings are more than anything else minds, a ceaseless flow of awareness. Our minds are crucial because it is through our minds that we contact reality. To be constantly mindful of God is salvation from worry, fear, and regret. Union with Christ means He is present to my will and I can surrender to Him all day long. It is a key mark of the will that, that surrender is the one act of the will that never exhausts but always refreshes us. The will was made to surrender to God because we were made for union with God. Now, union with God is not pantheism, the idea that God is in everything or is everything or is the universe, that somehow all of reality is in some way divine. The idea is not Buddhism, which has paradigms for union with all things. The idea is that God is still God, the very real personal being with a name, the God of the Bible. And we are human beings. We're unique, conscious, with volition and will. And in union, we are being united with God so that we are learning to share in His thinking and feeling as us. This is where discipleship is headed. All of the goodness of the journey is a means to an end, and the end is God. To know and love Him and to know and, and, and operate in love for Him and for one another and for the world. Think about it. All of what we do is moving to that goal, whether it's prayer or healing or worship or studying the scriptures or fasting or justice work, generosity, peace, community. All of these things are not an end unto themselves, but move us closer to loving God and to loving others the way He loves. Now, the problem is most of us hear the stages and can't help but think, I'm really on stage one? I'm still in the prologue? Are you kidding me? But remember, it's not that simple. It's not that linear. Maybe to you, the idea of union seems incomprehensible. It seems, you know, so far-fetched as to be unrealistic. But chances are, stick with me on this, you've already experienced it, at least a little bit, to some extent. Many of you have, in one way or another, in, in one moment or maybe a season of your discipleship, felt this deep, profound connectedness to God often in suffering for many of us, or it could have been in some other scenario where the, where the truth of Jesus resonated like a symphony to your very soul. Maybe it was a, in a moment of prayer or worship, or maybe it was through something like a work of art or in a meal around a table with those you love or just a season of intimacy and connectedness to a friend or your spouse. Maybe it was holding a child or laughing with a friend. A very good, very ordinary day. A moment in which the closeness and goodness of God seemed to you undeniable. The idea that we might be alone in the universe just seemed incomprehensible and the love of God was all around you. That is a glimpse 
a glimpse of the possibility that you can learn to live in that awareness as a disposition, as your baseline, rather than as a momentary glimpse. That is union. And most of us have seen it at least a little bit. There are three stages. Now, why the three? I think uh, Ruth Haley Barton makes it satisfyingly simple when she writes this. The classic stages of the spiritual journey, what we've just discussed, awakening, purgation, illumination, and union, are an attempt to describe the different movements we experience along the way. We all experience these stages, whether we know how to name them or not. The beauty of knowing about the spiritual stages is that, one, whatever we're experiencing, we can know others have gone before. And two, it helps us to know what to expect and what is needed on the journey. So let me end tonight with a reminder that I think is both complicated but also comforting. Every stage is a good stage because all of it is discipleship to Jesus. We don't say to our newborns, when you learn to walk, then you will be my child. My, my youngest son's name is Arlo. He's a year and some change now. He's begun to do this little skip around the house when he's wound up and excited. You know, his hair sticks straight up on his head and he makes this funny sound and he smiles and cackles as his older brother and sister playfully chase him around the living room and all of them laughing hysterically and knocking things over. And, um, it's something that I love to watch. For me, you know, a few months shy of 40, skipping around in a little circle in the living room and laughing to myself isn't really enough to fill me with joy anymore. So imagine if me being where I am looked at where they are, and instead of savoring the exquisite beauty of those moments, I just thought to myself impatiently, God, I can't wait till they're older. This stage is a good stage. They are my beloved children today, just as they will be decades from today. We are going somewhere in the journey, yes, but our primary focus and concern isn't how to advance, you know, as economically and efficiently from one stage to another. It's about learning to know and see Jesus in each stage. And when he asks something of you, learning to say yes, learning to sense his closeness in your stage. Each stage is good. There's no rushing it. There's only the road of discipleship and walking it well. So let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to do that. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.